This is Trinity Western University's Chapel Podcast, where our daily chapel gatherings are captured and shared for the TWU community. Whatever your day looks like today, we're glad you're tuning in. Thank you very much. Uh, so it's fun to be with you guys uh, yesterday. And if you guys recall, we talked a little bit about those who are here. I'm sure everybody isn't here every time, but I talked a little bit about uh, the, the the issue of how Christians communicate with the non-Christian world. Um, and if you weren't here, let me just give you the short synopsis badly. There you go. Save the whole chapel trip. So right now, we have not been doing a super job of conveying Christian convictions to the non-Christian world. Um, and I summarized a few things that I thought were particularly important. That's number one, I think one of our problems actually is that we don't listen with a hermeneutic of charity. So we don't give people the gift of love as we listen to them. We tend not to hear uh, what's going on inside their hearts. We tend to make judgments too quickly. We, we, we lack a hermeneutic of charity. The other thing we lack is a, is a rhetoric of wisdom. We don't speak wisely. And a lot of what I was talking about last time was about how can we speak more wisely. I think up on the slide, there's a couple of quick summaries. Uh, first of all, I pointed out that we live in a culture right now where the Christian viewpoint has now become the minority viewpoint. Um, we are what would uh, communication folks would call a counter-public. In other words, we're not part of the prevailing public, we're part of the counter-public. Our, our opinions we can't assume that others would broadly be in agreement with. In light of that, the prophetic voice simply declaring what's true is probably not the voice we most often need to use. There's nothing wrong with prophetic declarations. They happen in scripture. I'm just saying in the context we happen to be in, we probably need to appeal more to what I called last time the persuasive voice because we just identified that the Holy Spirit sometimes speaks to us in a prophetic voice, declaring what's true and asking us to repent, sometimes in a pastoral voice, coming alongside, comforting us, meeting us in our need, and other times in a persuasive voice where he persuades the world concerning what is true, and he calls to mind the words that Jesus said and things like that. And I'm saying right now we need to speak probably in a more persuasive voice to our culture. And I pointed out that Aristotle uh, gave a lot of interesting thought to this issue about rhetoric. It was a big thing, actually, for both Greeks and Romans. But one of the things that Aristotle said, when it comes to persuasion, the key element is not logos, the logic and rational flow of your argument. And it's not even pathos, your ability to, to raise emotions in your hearers, but it's actually your ethos, your perceived character. Is this a person who is good? Is this a person of goodwill? Key things about that were, number one, the ability to listen, and by that I mean the ability to hear, understand, and be able to articulate the thought of the other side so that they say, oh, he gets it, he understands, he understands me. Second key element is wisdom, and that is the ability to, in effect, speak back to those issues with reasonable arguments. And then finally, the issue of goodwill. Does this person really have my best interest in heart? Uh, and this is actually one of the things that we most commonly fall down on. And people are really good at picking that up. Does this person really have goodwill towards me? Um, I don't know if there's like some magic invisible sensor on top of your head that blinks and says, he doesn't really care about you. 
But we pick up on that really well. So when we're communicating in the non-Christian world, if we don't have an authentic love and concern and goodwill to the human flourishing of the people that we're talking to, we probably need to go back to Jesus and find that before we continue to communicate back to that world because they will pick up on that and in all likelihood our words will fall on kind of deaf ears. So those are some of the things that we talked about last time. Today I want to do something different. I want to move on and talk about what I will call convictions, winsome convictions, and particularly some of the interesting challenges that, that we have in that regard. I think I mentioned, so I talked to so many groups in the last 24 hours, I can't remember who I talked to what about, but I think I mentioned to you guys before that I'd had this conversation with somebody uh, about speaking to non-Christian world and said, dude, this is what's happening in our church right now. I don't have to go to the non-Christian world to find these kinds of conflicts. Uh, these are, are things that are happening right here. And I thought, you know, he's really right. Um, and, and in many ways, interestingly enough, the conflicts that we have as Christians the challenge of conveying and conversing about Christian belief is actually more problematic than it is communicating with a non-Christian world. Here's my thesis. The, the number of disagreements we have should be less within the body of Christ. In other words, we, do, we agree on some really big core issues. That's fine, well, and good. But the things that we do disagree on for interesting reasons actually become even more problematic than when we disagree with a non-Christian world. Part of it is a simple observation that when you're talking to a non-Christian about some core issue like this, politically sensitive or whatever it may be, you assume that there will be disagreement. When you're talking to a fellow believer, you tend to assume that there will be agreement. And when you don't get it, suddenly your world begins to spin out of control. So let me talk about a few issues about Christian convictions that make it particularly problematic. In effect, when you're moving from the body politic to the body of Christ, you're having this conversation. What's different about it? So number one, um, interesting thing is the way we develop our conviction. You can go ahead and go to the next slide here. Um, our convictions as Christians are generally not cultivated in order to please ourselves. So if you're not a believer, if you don't have some other set of guidelines or moral markers that you appeal to, when you're developing your questions, you're basically answering the question, what do I feel about this? What do I think about that? What do I believe about this particular issue? And in effect, you're developing your convictions to please yourself. That's exactly what Christians don't do. Because I don't really care too much if my conviction pleases me. What I care is, does my conviction please Jesus? because I literally believe that I will give an account to Jesus for what these areas of convictions that I have are. So if I like it or don't like it is a relatively small matter to me. What's really important to me is what does Jesus think about this? What does Jesus feel about this? What does Jesus say about this? So what happens when I start talking to you and you have a different conviction? You're not telling me that I'm wrong. You're telling me that I'm wrong about Jesus. I haven't gotten my conviction wrong. I've gotten Jesus wrong. And you know what? That's a bit of a touchy issue for a Christian, right? You're telling me I have Jesus wrong. So that's our first issue is that we're not cultivating convictions to please ourselves. And so we aren't, when we're rejecting someone else's conviction, it isn't just a personal thing. It's a Jesus thing. 
The second thing is that we develop our convictions in response to God's word, which we consider to be authoritative, infallible. Um, it is, you know, the bottom line. So I, I have to answer some question, be it about abortion or about, you know, you know, racial relations or about immigration, whatever the issue may be. My first thought is, oh, I need to go to God's word to get the word of God, the wisdom of God about this particular issue. So I go and study the word and I come up with a conviction. Then you show up with the opposite conviction. Give me a break. How can this be? And suddenly you have kind of two unsavory possibilities. It's possible that you're just a person of bad faith who says, I know the Bible says that, but just so you know, I don't care. So that's possible, but let me point out, that's a little unsavory if you're in my you know, Bible study group or part of my church or whatever, and you're just saying, I don't care about the Word of God. Second possibility is you're saying, in effect, Rick, you've gotten the Word of God wrong, and the position that you're teaching, the things that you're saying, are actually not what God says. In other words, what has he called me? A false prophet. Nice. How am I going to feel about that? And you suddenly realize, oh, this is going to be a little bit, a little bit tense. And the other thing, the final issue, I think I call it here on the, on the slide, that we live in the midst of what's called the great antithesis. This is a phrase from uh, Abraham Kuyper actually uses to describe the, the great battle between God and Satan. And I think this is true of Christians. We actually don't view ourselves as being the center of the battle. We're kind of sucked up into a battle of the ages. And it's ultimately a battle between God and Satan over who's really going to be God of this world. Uh, that's the big battle. And so you find a lot of passages in Scripture that sort of reinforce this, this point and talks about the world hates you um, because we testify that the works of the world are evil. And you see this antithesis between the works of God and the works of the world in that context. Uh, Jesus says, if the world hates you, know that it's hated me before, because it, uh, before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you, but you're not of the world, and the world's going to hate you. And so you have this sense of the animosity and, and kind of a sense of battle lines that are drawn up. Now, once you realize that that's a battle line between the gospel and between the world, and someone shows up in your small group Bible study acting like a Christian, but talking like a non-Christian, you're suddenly like, wow, this person is on the other side, but they're dressed up and acting like they're on my side. And in fact, if you ever go to war, you'll discover if you find a person from the enemy forces behind your lines in your group, and they're dressed like the enemy soldier, you take them to a prisoner of war camp. And when the war is over, you return them back to their original nation. What happens when you find them dressed up like your guys, but they're actually on the other side? You identify them then as a spy, and you know what they do as spies? They shoot them in the morning. And this is what we feel like when suddenly someone who you're thinking is on your side is talking like they're on the other. And you have this profound sense of betrayal and say, this isn't an enemy soldier. This is an enemy spy. And you can see how all this stuff gets ramped up to a whole new level. And as I mentioned, hopefully you have fewer of these points of conflict. But wow, when you have them, they're a big deal because they're questioning your understanding of Jesus, your understanding of God's word, and perhaps even whose side are they on in the great battle that is raging. 
So that's the problem, the unique problem that we face with, with Christian convictions. Now, what in the world do we do about that? It's great to come, uh, give people this terrible problem, then hop on an airplane and fly out of Vancouver in an hour. So, hey, we're good. Uh, but let me talk a little bit about how do we make sense of this and how do we live with this. And I'm going to do this by just reading a short passage, a short portion of a longer passage in Romans 14 where Paul talks about this sort of issue and kind of gives us some help in navigating this thorny issue of Christian conviction. And I'll just read the beginning part of this. The whole chapter deals with this issue, but I don't have time to go through that in detail. So Romans 14, verse 1. As for the one who's weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. Uh, other translations will call it quarrel over disputable matters. One person believes you may eat anything, while another person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? In other words, this person isn't your servant. They're Jesus' servant. And Paul's asking, who are you to pass judgment on them? It is before his own master he will stand or fall, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while others will, another will esteem all days alike. Each should be fully convinced in his own mind. And Paul then continues to develop this, actually, for the entire chapter. I highly recommend it for your reading. But let me just pull out of this a couple of quick summary points, because uh, this will give just a framework for thinking about how we negotiate these matters. Number one, he talks a little bit, let me kind of address a couple of definitions about things he mentions to clarify what they are and what they aren't. Um, he talks about disputable matters, matters of opinion. And in that context, it's the easiest way to think about it is there's matters of mere taste, there's matters of absolutes, and in the middle is an area that we can call disputable matters. So on the one hand are things that are beyond dispute. So for Christians, these are probably things like the deity of Christ, the resurrection, the incarnation, things like that that lead to the classic sort of Christological heresies that we use for marking off a cult from a faithful Christian church or organizations. For Paul, these are clearly beyond dispute. These are universal truths that, that Christians affirm. Some of these may be moral matters as well. Right before this passage, Paul says, let the time that has passed be sufficient, and he lists a whole bunch of sinful activity, including things like orgies. So if you're thinking, hey, orgy, maybe so, maybe I'm not, no. The answer is just no. Paul says that's for the time past. So it's not a disputable battery. It's just like, no, don't get to do that. Even if it's Friday night, no. On the other end, you have matters that you might call beneath dispute. They are so unimportant that you shouldn't even form an opinion or a conviction about them. Classic example in the New Testament is Paul saying, you are from Cephas, I'm from Apollos, I'm from Paul. What are you guys doing bragging about the person who led you to Christ? He says, that's embarrassing. That shouldn't even be an issue you form a personal conviction about. That's beneath that area. It's beneath dispute. It just is an accident of history. Don't even think about it. In the middle, he says, there's a bunch of other issues that he calls disputable matters. And let me just clarify here, he's talking about days and diets. And he's talking about that in the Greco-Roman world. And he's talking about that in the book of Romans. And if you open up the book of Romans and read through it, basically in every single chapter, you're going to read something about the Jews and the Gentiles. 
because the Roman church was a mixed church that had both Jews and Gentiles in it. And this is a very contentious relationship. And within that context, Paul talks about the issue of days and diets, Sabbath sorts of days and kosher eating regulations. And let me just point out, it would be hard to find a more contested and controversial issue at that time and place than days and diets, right? I mean, just read the Gospels, where days and diets, you know, they were always coming down on Jesus for what he was doing on a particular day. He healed on the Sabbath. Did you wash before you ate? What do you do with your dietary concerns? These were the things that were definitional to Judaism. They were hugely important. But Paul says, you know, it's actually okay for people to have divergent opinions on those matters. And I'm not asking you, interestingly enough, to actually reconcile them. It's okay for those things to diverge. One other quick note, which is kind of interesting. He talks about the weaker brother. So welcome this weaker brother without, um, you know, requiring him to, in fact, change his opinion on this matter. Uh, and let me just point out, I thought, in effect, the weaker and stronger here relative to conscience. And the, the interesting thing is he talks about the exact opposite way that we usually think about it. When we think about a person who's like the strong believer, we think about the guy who has a really sensitive conscience. Oh, we shouldn't do that, we shouldn't do that. In this passage, the person with the hyperactive conscience is the weaker brother. And he says, you know, what I want you to do is to go ahead and respect and not dispute with them about their greater sensitivities on issues like, can I eat this or can I not eat this? And it's the weaker brother, so I can't. And it's the stronger person who is, quote, stronger in faith uh, that says, hey, you know what? Christ really has superseded all the dietary laws. They really are just a shadow of a reality, and I don't need to regard those. That's the, the issue that Paul is, is clarifying there. And it's interesting that our perception of this is just usually the dead opposite, that hyperactive conscience is somehow a mark of, of true believers. So, interesting bit of background on that by way of definition. Finally, let me just co conclude my time with talking a little bit about some sort of do's and don'ts for navigating uh, the issue of, con of convictions. The number one thing that Paul says right at the outset is don't quarrel. Don't fight about these disputable matters. He says, go ahead and form a conviction. He says, I want you to be fully convinced, you're but don't fight about those. In other words, he's saying you are free to form your own convictions, and that's why we're going to call them personal convictions. They're personal. On the other hand, he says, I want you to be fully convinced in your own mind. I want you to know that you're not going to stand before your brother regarding that conviction. You're going to answer to your master, namely Jesus, about that conviction. I want you to be fully convinced, and I want you to know that anything that doesn't proceed from faith is sin. Ready, go. And suddenly you're like, oh, wow. So I actually need to form a conviction on these things. I need not only not to quarrel, but I need not to be indifferent. I need to care, and just I'm going to develop a personal conviction. It's designed, in effect, for domestic consumption, not for export. The convictions that you're forming are things that you use to express your faith in Christ in the context of ordinary daily life. What you eat, what you drink, what movies you watch, all those sorts of things, you stop and say, wow, I'm gonna answer to Jesus for this stuff. I better develop a good, solid conviction about this matter. And so you think it through, and you become fully convinced in your own mind. And then you put that into practice, because that personal conviction is designed for domestic consumption. In other words, you work out your conviction. You live it out. Your roommate does not have to. 
because he's going to answer to the same Jesus for his or her convictions. And the message that Paul is giving here is definitely one where we get along and don't quarrel, but it's not one where we say we all have to agree on everything, even things that seem wildly important in a particular given context. In this case, as I mentioned, days and diets. Um, how does this actually work? Let me give you a, a bit of a metaphor for, for thinking about this. When it comes to issues of conviction, we have a tendency to want to police them and enforce them. As I say, export them. Um, and uh, let me just give the metaphor here of, in effect, like a sheepdog. So let's say you've got a bunch of critters, whatever the critter may be, and you want to get them from wherever they are into the corral back home to the place where they all belong. But right now they're all spread out in the meadow doing their little sheepy things or whatever sort of a critter you happen to have, but you need to get them back home. And so one option is the sheepdog option. And you, you know, you call in Harry the sheepdog and he runs around and he starts barking and he starts nipping. And if you've ever seen a sheepdog do its work, it'll find all the outliers and it'll bite their little heels and they, you know, jump up. Sheep aren't the brightest critters, they're sure fuzzy, but that fuzzy goes all the way up to their brains and they kind of just are you know floating around they don't know what direction they're going so the sheepdog is a guy who knows and he keeps nipping and biting and barking until he finally gets them all into the into the corral where they belong and you know that's his moment of success and that is one way to move a bunch of people in the right direction that they ultimately need to go here's another way it's the way of the mother duck the mother duck is sitting there at the riverbank, and uh, all her little ducklings are sitting around doing ducking things. They're ducking their heads, and they're ducking around here, and they're quacking, and they're doing whatever they do. And mom looks down on her little webbed foot and says, oh, it's time to go home. What does mother duck do? She bounces up out of the creek, and she just starts walking down the bank. And little duckling one is sitting there chewing on a bug and looks up and says, where's mom? It looks like, oh, there's mom, and mom's walking. And so next thing you know, little duck's like walking after, after mama duck. And then duck number two was playing with duck number one, and what happened to duck number one, duckling number one, and oh, there. And the next thing you know, this whole line of ducks is marching home, and no one got bit, and no one got barked at. They just decided this is a good way to go, and let's follow. And you know what? The greatest gift you can give to the church regarding your convictions is to live it out like a mother duck. You wake up and say, this is the way I need to walk and start walking that way. And lo and behold, somebody's going to look and say, hey, you know what? That's a good way to walk. And they'll start following you. And others were following behind. And before you know it, you'll be going to the place you think you need to go to based on your conviction. And you won't have bitten anybody and you won't have barked at anybody because you'll have said, my conviction is for domestic consumption. My conviction is for me, and I'm going to live it out. And you can live it out publicly. You can live it out transparently. But the point is, you live it out, and let that living out of it be the thing that draws other people in line, the way the mother duck brings the ducklings home. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the gift of convictions. We thank you that that is the place at which our faith kind of meets the road and we express what it means in our minds to honor you as Christ our Lord. And Lord, I pray you'd give us both the grace to cultivate convictions clearly, to think well about the issues that confront us in the culture in which we live, but Lord, also the heart to faithfully follow and express those convictions without requiring other people to embrace them at all times. 
Help us to be people who model our faithfulness by the way we conduct ourselves and entrust to you the results of that process. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for joining us today. We hope that this message has challenged, encouraged, and inspired you as we continue learning and growing together in discipleship to Jesus. Every week, you'll find new chapel messages on our channel from local and international speakers ranging in diverse and engaging topics. So go ahead and subscribe for the latest of what's going on in chapel. Much love and happy listening.